All right, welcome to Misunderstood with Rachel Yucatel. I'm going to start by talking about how I met my next guest. Um, I was living with a friend in Florida at the time. I had become a complete recluse. Um, everywhere I looked, uh, every time I turned on the television, every time I opened a newspaper, my name was all over the news. And at the time, we didn't really have social media like we have now. Um, you couldn't really look at your phone and just check it like we would do. But the social media at the time was Radar Online and TMZ. And it was, you know, updated hourly. And my name was at the top of the list. And it was devastating what people would say about me. And those things, for the most part, were not true. And it was debilitating to my self-esteem. I had really um, gotten into a point in my head where I just... I literally couldn't function physically, mentally. I had lost all my friends. I had lost my family. I didn't trust anybody. It was really horrible. Talking about it makes me like upset to even remember that place that I was at. Um, <clears throat> but I knew that I, you know, had to get out of that somewhere. And I, um, I got a phone call from someone who said, listen, you got to start getting out of your house. You got to figure out what you're going to do. And what I knew that I needed to do was figure out how to tell my own story without talking about what everyone else wanted to talk about. And to do that, it was to try and get people to understand who I was. And if they chose to dislike me after they knew who I was, that was fair. But they had to give me a chance to let them know who I was. And sorry, it's like so emotional thinking about um, that time in my life. So um, this is when Drew came into my life and he's so important to me um, because he was the only person that um, I felt got me. So I actually got a crazy call before Drew and it was Donald Trump. And he, um, <laughs> he called and he said, I want you to be on The Apprentice. You would be great. You're the biggest star right now. I did not see myself as a star, but that's what he saw as star quality, right? The person that was, um, you know, guiding headlines and making news. So I agreed to do um, Celebrity Apprentice. Um, and I, my charity was the Red Cross, and I thought this would be a great way for me to show people who I was. I was smart. I was resourceful. Um, and, um, so he set up a meeting with Michael Cohen and I had lunch with Michael Cohen and we figured out how I would move forward and go on that show. But at the same time, I was still feeling awful. I couldn't come out of the house. And the guy who had set up this meeting with Donald Trump also said, well, listen, I have this other opportunity at the same time. It's celebrity rehab. And I said, well, I don't have an addiction. So that's ridiculous. I'm not going to do that show. And they said, well, I just want you to meet Dr. Drew and have a conversation. And they kept offering more and more and more money. And I said, it's not about the money. I'm not going to do it. I don't have an addiction. And long story short, we met at the Lermitage the night before they started airing. And out within probably 30 minutes of sitting down, well, within the first five minutes, but we sealed the deal in 30 minutes, but of sitting with Dr. Drew, I knew that I was not going to go on The Apprentice. I knew that I needed to sit with Dr. Drew and go on Celebrity Rehab, not because I wanted to be on a reality show, but because I needed this man in my life. I knew that no one else got me, and I was so alone. 
Anyways, so without further ado, I'm going to introduce my next guest. Um, it's Dr. Drew Pinsky, obviously. Um, he's the most wonderful man in my life still to this day. He knows everything about me. Um, he's a doctor. He's a podcaster. He's an author. And he's my good friend. So without further ado, Drew Pinsky. Oh, Rachel, you're making me so emotional. I, I remember, I'll never forget <laughs> sitting there. Were you with the sunglasses on? You couldn't make eye contact. It was, it was. I, and, and at the time, I didn't know you, so it wasn't as distressful to me as it is now thinking back on what you were going through. And I really didn't know what you were going through also. I had no idea yet. And uh, oh, my God. Oh, my God. I, 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 I bear witness. You're, you're, yeah. There's not one thing you said that would, in fact, I'd say you understated what it was like <laughs> yeah. and, what, what, what that, and, and the degree of distress you were in. Yeah. So, oh, my goodness. So thank Sorry. you for saying all that. But, but uh, <laughs> We're, we're you and I are just going to sit here and cry about all this, and and yeah. I and I and I, ha I was you know sort of wanting to say to you too, and here now we're both going to get very emotional. But your podcast name is so perfect because you you I when I think about you, you've been misunderstood your whole life, and and that I also had an opportunity to to bear witness to, and and there's a lot of unfair misunderstanding of Rachel, you could tell, I mean, across your lifespan. So th this was just the the major crisis in it, but it, but it connected back to a lot of other stuff. So thank you. I'm here to tell you. And I want everyone to know Rachel worked hard. Rachel <laughs> worked very hard on this stuff and kept going long after the camera stopped. And um, I think I watching you from afar, I'm imagining you, you're continuing some of this stuff in some fashion to the very day. So yeah. congratulations on your improvement and, you know, how, how well you've done. Yeah, it obviously the show had a huge impact on me. So I wanted to talk about it a little bit because people talk about reality shows to this day and talk about how fake they are, how staged they are. But for me, in my experience, that was not staged. So for people that have not seen Celebrity Rehab, let's talk about it for a second. There was eight people on the show. We were brought into... Um, where was that? In Pasadena, California. It's a residential treatment program in Pasadena. Okay. And you had done it for what? Three seasons before mine, I think? It's it's all a kind of a blur to me, what order yeah. everything was in. I remember everybody. I don't remember who was with who and in what order, but I would say you were, tor we'd probably already done it two or three times by that point. Yeah. Right. So, um, but you guys had figured out the kinks, I think, by then. But so, um, but we had eight people on our season, and everybody was a pretty well-known actor or musician or somebody. And I remember coming in and feeling very awkward because I was not addicted to a substance per se. And I know that. So we had Leif Garrett, and he was addicted to heroin. He was actually in a serious withdrawal. Do you remember that when he came in? And um, and then we had Eric Roberts, the actor, um, and we had Janice Dickinson, my roommate. You remember her, <laughs> obviously. And good, good. Um, we had Jason Waller, who is um, a, if you know, you should bring Jason in. He's yeah. he is a miracle. Oh my God, that guy is a rock star. Yeah, no, he's great. I'm still friends with him. We had um, let's see, Jeremy London who had a very interesting story at the time. I think he had just uh, gotten um, kidnapped or something and um, so had some interesting stories with his ex-wife, but wonderful guy who I became, you know, I became great friends with all these 
guys. Um, and then let's see. And then we had, um, and, and Rachel, Rachel, do you remember Janice coming in group one day and telling her Bill Cosby story? Right. Cause I, I had a memory no. of, of that. It might've been just she and I sitting in that room. I, I can't remember if the group was full or not, but she, she told the same story that she told many times later. And uh, I don't even think she told me who it was. She just told me this story. And um, oh, wow. yeah, it was bull. Oh God, no, that's awful. I, I do remember her issues with men, obviously, and her and her father and, and all that stuff. Um, and then of course, since then we've lost two people that were very special in the group, Frankie um, Lons and um, Jason Davis, which has been really hard. Um, you know, in such a small group to have lost two people, it's incredibly difficult um, to see what addiction does to does to people because they did die of addiction. Well, and it and it shortens your life, right? I mean, even if you don't die of addiction, like like you know, Tom, Tom Sizemore was a, a dear man to me, and he just died of a, a brain aneurysm. It mm -hmm. it weakens your system. It gives you all kinds of other medical problems down the road. You can still think of it as, a, as an addiction death, but you know it's because of having had this thing, even if it's in hand. It's yeah. very, very scary. When was the last time you spoke to uh, Tom? Uh, it must have been, I'm trying to remember if it was during COVID. We probably a year and a half ago, year and a half, wow. both Bob and I did with him. And, and Bob and I had known, Tom, we'd worked with Tom for many years in various settings and, uh, and we did extremely well with him. When he okay. would stay with us, but of course, you know how it is, people drift out and do their own thing and and then it then it doesn't go so well. Right, right. So yeah, it's a horrible um story. And I know everybody worked so hard being on that show. And so, you know, I just wanted to say my experience being on that show is that we all worked hard and to get people to come on that show, yes, we're given a paycheck, right? So um and people, I think, don't really understand that, especially for that show, these are addicts, so they don't want to be there. And they're also actors and entertainers, so they're probably like, oh, great, I can make some money to feed my addiction, or whatever their reasons are. For me, I wanted to be there to tell my story because I needed people to know who I was without talking about the scandal, without being able to classify me in whatever, you know, narrative they wanted to give me, but I wanted them to see who I was without the other stuff going on. And if they chose to dislike me after that, that was total fair game. But, you know, I, I needed to be able to show who I was in, in between those lines. And, um, you know, I always say that, you know, there's only so much editing can do. You can rep, you can only represent yourself how you want to represent yourself. And it's a very hard place to, you know, hide who you are for 30 days and especially in those, you know, confines. So I, I quite frankly loved being there. I loved, um, the people I was with, even though it was so hard. And I, I actually want to show a clip to remind you of the time that we had. Before there. you do, before okay. you do, uh, <laughs> we, you and I had some really interesting moments, but, but the one thing that immediately jumped out to me about you is how freaking smart you are. Uh, and, <laughs> And as a result, I always kind of teased you about this, but you don't, you're not super patient when things aren't smart, when things aren't, you know, you don't, I, I used to remember you used to tell you, you don't suffer fools gladly. I'm sure that's yeah. still the case, but yeah. Rachel is so smart that she gets very impatient when people don't keep up with her. And uh, that's, I think that it's, it's funny to me. I think it's actually an asset. 
Yeah. Yeah. You were the one that taught me that line for the first time when I was there You that I don't suffer. F- you really, I could see in your eyes. You're like, oh, yeah, that's me. <laughs> yeah. Because when you explain that to me that I don't suffer fools gladly, I remember saying to you, what does that mean? But and you were you had to stop me and say, you got to have a little patience for people to catch up because I was like, I'm here to work this out. I'm here to figure this out. And you're like, Rachel, you're dealing with addicts that, you know, and you're you, you have to also trust people they have to trust you like slow down for a second part of that is that trust building stuff yes absolutely yeah yeah but i want to show that clip for a second most of the ones that are having that kind of trouble are aware they're doing it and are literally trying not to and hear themselves do it and are very upset that they do it and they do it anyway Mm -hmm. it's part of their condition I think that's part of their condition. I don't think it's part of her condition. I think she can just be rude because she thinks she's more important than everybody else here and it's her television show. That's what I see. Yeah. I don't see it as part of her disease. So she, when she talks about how injured she is and how anxious she is and how, how traumatized she It depends she what was. she talks about. She's said in meetings that she had an alcoholic father and then Jason Davis said something about alcoholism and said she had an alcoholic father and she jumped down his throat and said her father wasn't an alcoholic. So I don't know what we're dealing with. We know he was abusive. I'm sure he was. I'm not taking that away from her. I can tell when it's about being in front of the camera because she wants it to be about her and when it's about a real feeling. I think you can too. I I, I don't know what you're talking about. Okay. I don't know what trauma is. If you're accusing me of lying, then we have a huge, huge problem. Lying? I didn't accuse you of lying. I accused you of letting her get away with stuff that I think you know is a a problem to people that are really trying to go through something. I'm trying to understand exactly because I I heard multiple different Okay, I don't want to argue with you because this this, um, hostility is not about you. So I don't want you to start making it about you and then we'll have a real problem because then we'll start not getting along, which is what you're starting to do. So why don't I leave and I will go read the book you Ask me to read, and we'll be done with this conversation. Is that okay with you? It's okay with me. I loved how you challenged me. (laughs) You know why? Because that's you working. You were in it. You were there. And and there is stuff, you know, there's, as I... I'm not sure I understood what you were at the time, but as I look at it now with a camp from a camera, every time I sat down with somebody, I had to think to myself, are they saying this for the camera? Are they saying this for real? Are they editing for the camera? Because you understand part of my, my, my job was not to out somebody in front of a camera, right? I mean, if they want to keep something that, that happens in, in real life, you'd push harder, but in front of a camera, like I don't, if they don't want to put that out there, I, I have to, I have to protect that. I have to support that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you were, you were telling me something different, which I didn't get, which was yeah. that she was essentially, I don't know, maybe it's not the right word, but sort of mugging for the camera, right? That she was pulling shit out for the camera. Right. Right. And I was coming in from the perspective of I'm a civilian. I just became famous sort of right within a couple of weeks of or whatever, a couple of months of coming onto that show. I, I didn't consider myself a celebrity. I was just a girl coming on there trying to get help. And I was surrounded by celebrities. So it was the first time I was seeing that. And I was talking to you like, I'm here to get help. And all these people are doing all these crazy things for the camera. Like, what are we doing here? You know what I mean? So, um, for sure. 
for sure. And anyway. I, I had trouble. I, I'm always trying to sort that out. So you were actually helping me and challenging me. And, you know, we were forging our relationship, which right. was the part I appreciated was. And by the way, <laughs> if people don't know, Rachel went out the wrong door, which was a very intentional move on her part, I think, <laughs> because that was supposed to be all didn't wasn't supposed to be in the camera, wasn't supposed to be there, didn't supposed to exist. And um, so, so we were forging our relationship and you <laughs> hung in and you hung in and that was, that was really the part. And I know, and if you remember, I had conversations with you about this, you probably did that in the real world relationships and people would abandon you. And, and that I wasn't, I was not going to do that no matter what. No. And you've never have abandoned me. And I always appreciated that. So part of me coming on this on this show is that you taught me all about love addiction. And that's what I wanted to get into here um, because so many people at the time, especially so long ago, made fun of that term. It has gotten much more commonplace now. Um, so let's talk first about what that is. For me, it was, you know, where people mistake intensity, um, you know, for love really. And, you know, and I made that mistake many times, it got me into a lot of trouble. But why don't you talk from your perspective of, of what it really is? It's a construct. It's not a formal diagnosis. It doesn't sit in the DSM four or five or anything. It just, it, it is a construct to help us help patients. And it works very, very well. It, it dovetails with many other different conditions. I think the, the other condition that's also not a DSM diagnosis is codependency. And it, it goes in with those sorts of conditions. Again, these are constructs that help people deal with what's going on in their internal lives. And what Rachel's referring to is that one of the really common phenomenon with love addiction is that the addictive part is the lightning bolts and the intensity of the relationship that somebody is sort of can't break out of first of all is, is attracted to much the way a drug addict would be attracted to their drugs and gets addicted to that person in the same way and they tend to go through a cycle as a result of that of really a cycle a common cycle this is pmlody cycle of sort of uh, intensity you know walking on eggshells abuse forgiveness intensity and then back into these sort of weird cycles uh, there are various versions, you know, various sort of ways people do that, but it is uh, a, an unpleasant way to live. It, it's it's something that even when you get people into treatment, they still they still need a little of that. Sometimes they they people miss the intensity so much. So it's about getting them to get the balance right, which is very hard. And under underlying all of it is really kind of a boundary issue. Right. Where, yeah, where you don't, you, self and other emotions start to get blurred. Like uh, you, where you can be feeling a feeling, can be very intense, feel like you're feeling, but it's really something triggered by somebody else. It's not something primary and spontaneous in your feeling states. Now, don't you think a lot of people get... Uh it confused between sex addiction. And can you talk about what the difference is between love and sex addiction? Yes. Yeah, sex addiction is a little more uh, explicitly um, about the filling of that void and the intensity of the sexual experience 
that uh, can can you know many women come to sex addiction through love addiction. They're they're first love addicted and then they get preoccupied with the intensity and the sex tends to be the way that it fills that. But much like a drug, it just it needs constant refilling and increasing intensity over time. Love addiction doesn't include those sorts of behaviors necessarily. Love addiction is this cycle of abuse and intensity. Uh, sex addiction is more and more and more extreme um, arousal in and around sexuality. Right. Now, what is your thought about celebrities that are using love and sex addiction as excuses in these relationships for cheating? Uh, I don't like the, let's, let's, let's parse that out a little bit Mm -hmm. because when, when people say they're using an excuse, I, I get a little bit concerned because it's like saying, um, somebody used um, the fact that they got arrested as an excuse to go into treatment for drug addiction, right? right. If people come to treatment, people do things around their uh, problematic behaviors because somebody forces them to typically, especially in the addictive realm where people really, their brain fights them. Uh, you know, they, The brain is going in a certain direction and something, something has to come up against something before it will stop going in that direction. And so a spouse that catches that person is often what brings somebody to treatment for sex addiction or, you know, an arrest or some sort of, they hurt themselves, but these are the things that bring them to treatment. They, other than before that, they just keep going. Right. Right. So the the question then is what do they do with it? If they in earnest engage in serious treatment, and get better. Well, I mean, Terry Crews identified as a, as a porn addict at one point. And to me, it looked like he wasn't excusing anything. He was in treatment doing well and wanted to share his recovery. And I, you know, no excuses there. I'm sure he hurt somebody. I'm sure it wasn't pleasant to be in a relationship with him when he was acting out, but I, I, I don't see, I, again, I, the difference is people who say it, talk about it versus really do something about it. So have you been following like the biggest story in everybody's news cycle for the last week, which is this Vanderpump Rules uh, cheating scandal? I I have seen it. I don't really know much about it. So fill me in. Okay, so, you know, Vanderpump Rules is the show on Bravo. And quite frankly, I don't I've I haven't really watched that show. I don't really follow it. Um, and there was uh, a guy, Tom, who was uh, dating a woman for nine years and he had an affair. He was caught having an affair with one of the friends on the show, a girl in the friend group, this girl, Raquel, and she just issued an apology, um, blaming love addiction. I'm actually going to read you the statement she made because this just came out yesterday. Is that okay? Is it, is it interesting now that the love addiction is so common? I mean, you you know what I mean? Back when we you and I were talking about it, people would, they, they just, their eyes would glaze over. Yeah, they would be like, it would go over their head. <clears throat> yes. So this was what she what she issued to Entertainment Tonight. She said, I want to apologize for my actions and my choices. Um, foremost to Ariana and to my friends and the fans so invested in our relationships. There is no excuse and I'm not a victim and I must own my actions and I deeply regret hurting her. I am reflecting on my choices, speaking to a counselor and I'm learning things about myself such as my patterns of codependency and addiction to being and feeling loved. I have sought emotional validation through intimate connections that are not healthy without regard for my own well-being, sometimes negatively affecting others and often prioritizing 
prioritizing the intimate connection over my friendships. I'm taking steps to understanding my behavior and making healthier choices. Um, Blah, blah, blah. So she is basically saying that she's a love addict. Um, Now, she's gone on a lot. There's been a lot of speculation that she's changed PR firms a bunch of times and that she's really, you know, backpedaling and trying to figure out how to do this PR play. So, but, um, you know, she's claiming it was love addiction that made her do this. Two things. Uh, I have no idea if she's speaking sincerely or not, right? I don't know if she, it could have been somebody wrote that for her, but that's a pretty good piece. (laughs) It's a pretty good description of love addiction and how it works. And, and what I like is she apologized. She actually says, I'm sorry for what I did. Now you could argue that then launching into an explanation is sort of, that's where you go, uh, really just stay with the apology and making, you know, cleaning up your side of the street. What, what, I think this is where people get a little um, uncomfortable with this stuff, which is why I kind of like it because it's very educational. What she says, she's that what the accuracy of what she described spot on, but it, it comes off like an explanation for the behavior that led to the apology and people just want the apology. Yeah. hundred percent. Um, so what else would I want to get into? So recently you were on a show on Fox called Special Forces. Can we talk about that? Of craziness. Super crazy. So I watched a couple episodes. I thought it was insane. This looked super scary. Um, I cannot believe you did it. You went to Jordan. So they called me. And at the time, you know, I was feeling physically not very well. I'd kept having these episodes of diverticulitis and things. And they called me. I went, come on. I'm, I'm too old. For you you got to be kidding, right? And I thought to myself, oh, they need an old guy in the cast for some reason. <laughs> I thought I would be that guy. Because, you know, they kind of they slot people into these roles sort sure. of thing. And I thought, oh, that's got to be why they're calling me. Because no other explanation for it. Uh, and I was like, well, where are you going to send us to the Utah desert or something? They go, <laughs> no, the middle East. I'm like, what, how am I supposed oh to, how that's going to work? And I went out and I started training very hard, like sprinting Hills and wearing packs and all this stuff. And it made me feel great. And I, my, I sort of responded to it and I thought, well, maybe this is, maybe this is what I've been looking for. Maybe this will really get me out of my funk. And so I, then I started fighting for it. Like, Hey, I think I want to do this. And then they started pushing back like, oh, well, you need to do all this cardiac clearance and pulmonary VO2s and blah, blah, blah. I sailed through all that stuff. That didn't end up being my problem. <laughs> I had a different problem once I got there. But I'll let, I'll let you ask more questions when, as we go. Okay. So tell me about the cast. Tell me about some of the people in the cast. Cast was, you know, the, you know when you, much like you with your, your cast at Celebrity Rehab, you're, you're having these intense experiences together and it really bonds you up. I mean, yeah. and, and in our case, it was suffering and trauma and this extreme conditions. And it, it, it just bonded us up like crazy. And uh, I'll just say that it, it happened fast, too. Mm-hmm. We uh, they blew us up on a train and they took us hostage and they marched us through the desert. You, you only see bits and pieces of the misery we went through that day. But by the time we got to our camp, we were having this so-called lunch. And uh, there's 16 of us. I'll tell you more who was in there in a second. But Kate Gosling, who was one of the people in there, looked up. We were all very quiet. We were shell-shocked. And she goes, it was like two in the afternoon at that point. She goes, guys, look at us. They've changed us already. (laughs) We all were like, gosh, she's right. Holy shit. We are totally different people. And we are a a unit now. 
And it was, you know, Mike Piazza was there and, and Anthony Scaramucci who did a great job. Wow. Uh, Nastia Lucan, the uh, gold medalist, uh, Gus Kenworthy, another gold medalist, uh, and, uh, Danny Amendello from the New England Patriots, a lot of world-class athletes. Yeah. I was going to say, do you, do you think that their ability, you know, the fact that they were athletes, did that make it easier for them to compete? I, you know, when I look at what happened to us, uh, Dwight Howard and Lakers, you know, and, and just, and, uh, uh, Carly Lloyd, again, a world-class, uh, professional soccer player, of course, uh, the world-class athletes, you, you'll see, if you watch the whole series, the staff is kind of talking about that a long way. It's like, of course, it's a world-class athlete. Of course, he's got an edge there, but, um, but even the athletes struggled with the, um, with the emotional part. And, and I, because there was really trying things they put us through and you're always off balance and you never know what's coming. You kind of have to figure out what's right and wrong and what you're supposed to do without any instruction. It's very weird. Um, but I think youth was a significant, I think that was the main, that was a main issue. Uh, in my own case, I developed heat, heat stroke and brain swelling and dehydration and ended up, ended up in the ICU after, yeah, after just one day of this training physically, you know, we were diving out of helicopters into the red sea and things. I emotionally, I loved it. I was having the greatest day and all of a sudden I got sick. And it, it came out of nowhere. I was shocked and I got sick and I got sick fast. And, um, you know, it was five liters of IV fluid before I could stand up again. And when I look back on the, the, what happened, first of all, I didn't, I didn't appreciate, you know, we were 120 degree weather a lot of the day and I didn't appreciate what my fluid needs would be at, at my age. <laughs> and, uh, the other problem was we had two canteens and whenever they came to us and said, oh, your canteens topped off, if, it if they weren't tapped off, they punished the whole group. So I oh. always said, I'm fine. And I never was fine. I never had enough water. And yeah. the other thing, the water they gave us was 110 degrees. The water just sat out in the sun. And it was, it was hard to get cooled down. I, in, in, if I were to do it again, I would get much more of the sort of liquid IV tripe electrolyte stuff. I would drink constantly a lot and I would constantly pour water over my head or something to try to get the temperature right. Um, you know, I thought this kind of heat stroke happened to 85 year old little old ladies, uh, much to my, to, much to my surprise, it happened to me. Right. It was bad. It was rough. So it's one thing to be physically fit, but also I noticed just from the few episodes, you really have to be mentally there and it, it took a lot of mental stuff. They make a lot of the mental stress. And it is, you know, as you see, as you go on, if you watch more of it, the mental gets very intense. But I didn't, I, that was not my issue yet. I, it was literally keeping up physically, period, end. I, when, when they were trying to get me sort of rehydrated, I, I wanted to go back in. And something you don't see, you get so bonded up with your group. Um, I was in the medic unit and I could hear they, that they were paying the man that night. They were getting punished. And I started crying. I was like, I need to be out. I should be with, I hear them suffering. I need to be with them. And um, again, as you know, not everything goes on TV. Right, right. Great. That's nice. Uh, great background on you that I don't think a lot of people know. So I guess my last question for you is like, what is on your radar right now? Like, what are the biggest things that you're doing, seeing, hearing in the medical field, the addiction field? Like what, what's in your focus right now? I'm trying, I, I still do, you know, I still do outpatient medicine and I still, um, I'm asked to, 
you know, help out with addicts and alcoholics all the time. I, I do that work essentially for free now because I, I feel like I've, I've got, I've had this incredibly rich experience and I just want to kind of give it back. Mm-hmm. Um, it, what Susan has set up is a streaming show. I do three days a week on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday at three o'clock Pacific time. And really, I, you know, I think what that program has become is trying to make sense of the pandemic, trying to talk to voices that have been silenced, trying to learn something. Uh, I feel like she's booked it too far in one direction. We got to get it back in another direction because I, I'm agnostic on a lot of stuff. And I, I just want to understand what we got right, what we got wrong, uh, how to you know, be able to give informed consent to patients on certain topics that, that seem a little obscured by all kinds of political nonsense. Uh, and I want to survive that. <clears throat> people somehow believe today that if you talk to people with, forget agree with, just speak to somebody with outlying opinions, you are uh, an, you're you're a criminal <laughs> essentially. Right. So I'd like to survive uh, and help help uh, you know re- restore to restore our conversation to to um, civility and liberalism as it was intended. Right. What are your thoughts on, you know, any pandemics in the future, COVID type situations? There there are a few things that have come out of this that are jump out at me. One is that our public health officials have um, fiat, I mean, full totalitarian authority in an emergency. And I think we want to have some checks and balances to that, at least some people that are saying, hey, you need to justify what you're doing. You know, somebody elected, let's say, (laughs) just thinking these things with the public health official, number one. Number two, people are so um, distrusting of everything now. I I have such grave concerns. I Like I said, I I have been an acolyte and a, a fan of Anthony Fauci. And if you People took things I said at the beginning of the pandemic to try to reduce anxiety because I knew panic was not going to make things better. It's going to make things worse. And what I would say at the end of things I was saying that sounds like I'm minimizing COVID, which I did not intend, trying to minimize panic, I would always say at the end, please listen to Dr. Fauci, listen to the CDC. I have a lot of experience with Fauci. You can count on that guy. Well, whenever you see footage of me, that part's, of course, cut out. And Dr. Fauci has become a you know figure of concern of, of conflict or whatever. I I'm my hope is he restores his position to where it's always been. And I sort of have faith that's going to happen. But in the meantime, we got to figure out what the truth is, and everyone has to be willing to talk about it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, don't you see that that happens a lot, though? People um, get put on a pedestal. I mean, he got really put up on a pedestal for a while. And then, you know, the same people that put them on a pedestal almost want to throw them off the same pedestal. <laughs> and then the same people that want to put that person on a guillotine, they themselves end up on a guillotine at some point. People got to study your history, everybody. This is how it works. Uh, yeah. This country had a pretty good version of how to prevent those kinds of things from happening. And, and you sat in the center of all this yourself, Rachel. This is the same thing. You were you were the leading edge of this stuff. And mm-hmm. it must have been, at least, at least we have kinds of ways of characterizing it, understanding it today. But you, I, who... It was, I, I was there with you. It was hard to understand what was happening to you. It was impossible. Yeah. Yeah. And people can, you know, do it in all sorts of, you know, circumstances. So it can either be regarding the COVID thing or a scandal, but it is a very similar protocol, right? You know, that you, it's all misinformation or, or it's a narrative that gets put out, right? And then it's the public that feeds on a narrative and then it just explodes. And Let people, me ask you this. Go ahead. Uh, what I've noticed is 
as you said, you want people to know you. It's never people that know your your real feelings, your heart, and what what you're mm-hmm. doing. It's, it's always people who don't trust that or don't believe that. Yeah. Number two, the other thing that I found just extraordinary is the stuff that goes crazy and wild is is never what I said ever. It's always what somebody said I said. It's some interpretation of something I said. Was that happening to you too? Oh yeah, of course. They take something out of context and then they run with it. But you know what I've always found that's the most interesting? It really, you know, it has much less to do with me than it does about their feelings. And it's what triggers in them. And it's their anger towards me, which was so almost scary because, you know, what happened in my scenario happened between me and really two other people, but it affected the world in a way that made so many people angry that had nothing to do with them. That's a, that, that is your I, treatment. That is your treatment. <laughs> so you're, 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 you can make sense of the narrative of your life through, through being very, uh, that's a good boundary to set. It's hard because it is scary. Yeah. Yeah. And I watch it go on. I've watched it for years. You know, so many people like to comment on other people's issues, scandals, downfalls. But I think it really has to do with them wanting to make themselves feel better or get a lot of anger out. And, you know, I always try to caution people, you know, like you don't know what's going on in that scenario because you're not in it. You don't have the facts. You don't even know the truth. So, you know, I always try to make sure people realize that the the media doesn't have the all the facts. They're just reporting what they know. And sometimes they have a, a spin on it, you know, and people really need to be educated. There's a lot of, you know, ignorant people out there and, you know, and then people listen to the ignorant people and it's ignorant people listening. <laughs> the people are getting high on it on social media and stuff these days, I think in some weird way. Can I ask you a personal question? Of course. Did your grandmother pass away since we last were together? Yes. Yes. Okay. Everything you, that must've been a tough one for you. Yeah, it was tough, but, um, it was tough because it was when my daughter, um, I was pregnant with my daughter. So, yeah. So, I mean, it, it's been a while. So, um, it was tough because I was re- very excited to have her in my life for that. Um, but you know, it was important to me. I'm that- really sorry. Cause I know you were working on that relationship. I'm sorry. But I did get to tell her that I was pregnant with my daughter. So she got to hear that news. So that was a good thing. And are you and your mom? Okay. Is that. It's so funny that you bring that up because I, I, I do know that you know my history with my mother um, because you were very good at helping me set boundaries with my mother. Um, my mother is very close with my daughter. I I am I am still not close with my mother, but my daughter has a great relationship with her. So let me tell you something interesting. I, I had a similar experience with my father where we weren't that great, but he did such a wonderful job as a grandfather I was able to let go of my stuff. It didn't matter because he was doing so much for the kids. Are you experiencing anything like that? No, you're a bigger person than me. I'm not able to. <laughs> well, it didn't happen right away. It did not happen right away. We'll see if it happens. Well, I'm 48, so it's still not right away. I mean, <laughs> it's been many years. But I mean, but I mean, you may one day have such appreciation for what she does for your daughter that you just go, oh, it's too important for me to sit in my resentment. Yeah. No, I'm trying not to be resentful, but I, it's still, you know, I, I feel like I, I turn back into a 14 year old when I'm around her and all those feelings. 
Understood, my dear. I swear yeah. to God, it's just uncanny that that's what you call your podcast. Yeah. Uh, you were misunderstood. And, and yeah. I'm here to tell you, I understand you. And uh, you need to keep people around you that do that. And you respond really well to it. So keep people around you that do get you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you being here. I appreciate your support. I hope that um, you will come back on next time we want to talk about something important because you are always somebody important to me that I know I can count on. Absolutely. hundred percent. Anytime. Okay. All right. Thank you so much, Drew.